and we are back with another episode of Talking as a Free Action. I am your host, Owen, joined again here today with my co-host, Marvin. How you doing, man? Hey, bud. How's it going? Good, good. And we are not alone. We have actually a third a third person here with us today, another guest, um, Graham Gentz. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. How's it going? It's going great. Um, we're winding down as we're talking. There is just a couple hours left of my Kickstarter. <laughs> so it's, I guess we're celebrating that. Yeah, very nice. And I've seen it's been wildly successful. So um under the autumn strangely what a title <laughs> so um so uh, for those who don't know uh listening at home um graham here is the uh, brainchild of under the autumn strangely it's a storytelling game um that uh has a kickstarter that is unfortunately likely closed by the time you're listening to this um but uh graham i you know i wanted to have him on the show talk to a, uh, talk to him a little bit uh you know kind of about the game and uh yeah so uh you know again welcome and uh, so where's that title come from well, the good news is, fortunately, I'm going to be doing backer kits, so I'll be able to do uh, the pre-orders and late um, um, support, anything like that. The title is um, using some of my favorite words to invoke a, a specific, on one hand, a reference to Over the Garden Wall, which take the the initial inspiration for the mechanics that I'm playing with, but then also make it my own playing with kind of the grammar, making it sort of um, intentionally unwieldy. So it's a little bit hard to say. It's kind of a mouthful and all of that is is part of the design. Very okay. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we're kind of winding down, or as you mentioned, rather, we're kind of winding down here on the, uh, on the Kickstarter. I see that it's been wildly successful, though. Um, how's that been? Uh, it's been um, pretty unexpected, uh, pretty overwhelming, even even in a good way. Um, I've been a part of other Kickstarter projects as a designer or a writer. Um, this is the first that I've ever done completely myself. Um, the art is by the fabulously talented Shenza Deladonna, but um, I'm doing the writing and the layout and also the first and only line of defense when people are sending messages and doing things. I'm also doing all the promotion myself. So um, because zine quest has been such a boon for the community, um, it's just, it's people are coming in, they're showing their support. Um, and so I'm, I've just been completely blown away. Very cool. And uh, you, uh, I know I, uh, when I had initially reached out, I wasn't actually familiar, but um, so you're doing this through zine quest. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So to, to start kind of more broadly um, in our modern era of board games, role-playing games, um, it has been very common, even for larger companies of which I am not, I'm one person uh, to use crowdfunding. So Indiegogo or large, the Kickstarter, I mean, Millions and millions of dollars for big, big board games sometimes get get traded hands because um, people show up, they see the product, and then they say, yes, of course, um, uh, sign me up. Um, That's never been my world. Um, I love teaching board games. I love sharing experiences with people, but I'm really a a role-playing person and a storytelling game person first. So about three years ago, um, uh, Kickstarter did a promotional month called zine quest where people were encouraged to do small indie role-playing products 
um, um, in zine form. Uh, zines go back to a lot of the the beginning of, of role playing games, of chain mail, um, of just getting a little box full of these you know staple pieces of paper, um, and it, and it has a very punk rock feel to it. Going to the back of a a concert hall and and you know paying five bucks out of somebody's van to get to get their cool stuff, their music, their art. And I love that. Um, and so I've been fervently supporting it because that's exactly the space that I want to be in. I want to give you five bucks, ten bucks, fifteen bucks for your ideas. That's that's what fascinates me about the role playing space. Um, and finally, uh, here I am. So it they already did Zinecast three this year. And I, if only I hadn't been speaking to somebody before I went to Gen Con, they told me that they're doing it again. So twice in one year, hopefully, fingers crossed, they're going to go back doing it once per year because my goodness, I don't know what's going on over there. Um, but I, I, I've designed a couple of things in the past, but here I decided to say, okay, let's keep my ambition specific. Let's do an idea that I know how to execute. Um, let's find somebody to, uh, great to do the cover art. Um, and in 25 minutes, they gave me the hundred bucks, 200 bucks that I asked for. And then the support has been completely overflowing, which is, is, is wild. It means that I guess I did the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, clearly if people want it, they want it. Um, you know, I have to say that like, there's definitely something that's kind of appealing to that kind of, um, small scale production, right. You know, as opposed to like, I mean, yeah, it's nice to have like a nice hardbound book and and all that, but again, that kind of um, rugged feel that you're describing, you know, kind of uh, such a small project, maybe a dozen people know about it. Like, that's a really cool feeling, and it's really difficult to replicate, um, you know, with like the internet nowadays. So, it, it this is a really cool project, and I think that's um, like ZineQuest in general, rather, it is a really cool project, and I'm really uh, happy to see that, you know that there's still a lot of interest in supporting a lot of new and unique games. I think it's really easy sometimes to gravitate to kind of like some of the bigger names um, in the space. And, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, equally amazing games out there um, that, you know, a lot of people just don't want to give a shot. Yeah. I think the economics of it are, are in matters of degrees. Um, it's, it's exponential. The difference between the little guy and the biggest guy is a factor of one to a hundred times, a thousand times more. We're talking about millions, tens of millions of dollars. And we're talking about the people who can, who can barely scrape something together. There's no like equivalent middle class as it were. Um, there are some companies that are kind of in the middle there. Paizo being at the top, but still like, you know, huge support, you know, a lot of things going on. Um, and then you have companies, you know, like um, Chaosium that make Call of Cthulhu, even, even like Green Ronin. Um, but the the world and the people who I've met, the relationships that I've created, the friendships that I've made going to these like small cons with like a couple hundred people, um, people being excited by their creativity, by that, um, by that energy, by that sharing. Um, it's what has has encouraged me to stay, to come in, to meet people, to make games, to share things and be excited by what other people are doing. So um, this is a really easy way to do that is to encourage each other, to pat each other on the back, to give each other that motivation. Um, because not only is it is it cool for me to to get this new idea, but the other side, the other side of the 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 veil is somebody who is coming forward with their idea saying, I don't know if anybody will care about this. 
And then me saying, absolutely, to me, this is $10, but to them, it's the world. And that's, that's beyond valuable. I don't even have the words for that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's absolutely true. Like, you know, it, for some person, it might not feel meaningful, but, you know, obviously you've spent a lot of time and energy, uh, you know, working on this project. So, you know, yeah, that's everything. So I feel like we've talked a little bit around it, um, but, you, you know, and you kind of gave a brief description. But um, yeah, as far as the game's concerned, um, do you want to talk a little bit about, like, what the game is itself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Under the Autumn Strangely... Um, at its core is what I've I've been using the term pastoral horror. Um, it's a storytelling game um, that has a shared GM, um, and specifically, the core idea is that it plays with either a mixing of tones or tonal clash. Um, there's kind of two two main branches that kind of led me to this to this thinking. One is thinking about the the different games I've played over the years um, in which these clashes occur naturally. Um, not players and in traditional sort of facilitator GM roles, players aren't always on the same page. Um, uh, where we are blessed <laughs> with a, a modern era of safety tools and, um, you know, session zeros. And hopefully we're all adults and know how to talk about it, but that's not always the case. Um, <laughs> and so not. here we are. <laughs> right um everyone has had an experience being at the table where the dm is trying to tell a certain kind of game and the players intentionally or or otherwise you're just trying to play something different maybe they want to be silly maybe the other the 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 game itself is written in this very specific way to be very dour you know very serious um oftentimes i i drive for that immersion so i want to be horrified or intrigued or really really be dipped into my character in a big way um, and so for me, that was interesting. For me, that wasn't a problem. Um, for me, it was an opportunity because I was thinking about, again, the inspiration over the garden wall. I've been talking to people over the years about it um, because I've been slowly seeing bit by bit the the huge support, the huge love that people have for it. But beyond that is that everybody had a different take about why they liked it. I I loved it when I saw it, but that's because the horror appealed to me the weirdness um the kind of am uh, the ambiguity of the storytelling but some of my dear friends were like well it's cute and that had never occurred to me to describe it as cute but of course it is i i was not thinking about greg and and you know candy camouflage i was thinking about how potsfield is like the coolest thing i've ever seen um but so, even potsfield was cute <laughs> It was cute. It's, it, it's, it really was. So much about it is doing this very specific thing. And even though all of its elements are taken or are references to old Americana or, you know, you know classic um, um, musical traditions, um, I was thinking about, okay, well, if I wanted to, to play a game in this world, it would be very, very different from what somebody else did. And so I love decentralizing power structures in terms of design. So it drove me to say, okay, well, what if we just make it, not just ask it, but make a procedure that requires that people be in charge of these different tones. So you have a player who are responsible for the whimsy, for the silliness. Like you have that friend who's wants the cute stuff or, you know, can never take anything seriously. Well, great. This is your role. It's your responsibility to make it cute. 
okay, there's somebody who's going to be more of the world, more adding to the denizens. You know, they're the people adding the weird bucolic strangeness, not necessarily um, aggressive, but, you know, definitely a little bit off and giving that autumn tone, that feel of that cool breeze, you know, those rolling dusty hills. But of course, there is something a little bit off occasionally. And so there's a third role, which is the person that says, actually, there is something a little bit wrong here. Because whenever I run games, that's what I want. I want to get that description. And then after I'm processing it, I want there to be this little nudge and say, but something doesn't quite sit right with you. So that's where I would be. But I want other people to be creating the game and then meeting in the middle. And so that's the solution I came up with creating the kind of table and empowering players to make the game that'll fit for their players, their group, their friends. Okay. That that sounds kind of sick. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> like, not gonna lie, I would. Mm, do I back this right now? Hold on. Yeah, there's like <laughs> like an hour and a half left. Come on, get it up. Get that link up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's time for sure if you want to. We can stop right now. And you can go do it if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> One of your tears is potatoes and molasses. That's so good. Yeah, it is. It's a good one. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interesting because, like, I've, I've my interaction with Over the Garden Wall, um, which is kind of your source material here, is largely just through memes um, and my like brief Ooh. conversations with uh, with Marvin. And like, there are memes, you know, there's some, some good stuff there. But it's interesting, kind of seeing that tonally kind of translated to um, to kind of what's going on here. Yeah, it, it's it's. To me, the most compelling part, uh, in addition to just kind of being a witness to this wellspring of of the number, the sheer number of conversations that it built over time, it came out in 2014. I did not watch it in 2014. I watched it because several years later, I was at a random party and talking about uh, our favorite animated shows, like you do, um, and their favorite show they'd ever seen was this thing called Over the Garden Wall. And I was like, I've never heard of that. And watched it and liked it and continued to think about it. And then a little while later, somebody else is talking about how much they like it. A little while later, I'm with good friends I've known for years. And all they say is, you know, we watch it every single year. I'm like, every single year? They say every single year. It's part and of my Halloween traditions now. See, I keep hearing this. And when I hear people talk about <laughs> the stuff, it sticks in my head. And it makes me think, why? Because I'm curious about why humans do what they do, why they do what they do. And for me, that makes interesting games. That's what inspires me to create the kinds of things that I want to make. So I knew there was something there. And the mm -hmm. fact that everyone's take was so vastly different was keen in for me. Again, I'm a horror guy. I'm, I'm fascinated by that weirdness. Like, okay, Graham, run this horror game. Okay, well, just so you know, we're going to focus specifically on how children get turned into trees. Um, but that's like only one part of it. So it was important to me not to forget everything else that everyone else was finding so resonant, so personal, like a, like a warm blanket in October time. It's the cider. It's the, it's the pumpkin patches. Like it's, it's, like it's keen into something very specific that hasn't been fully spoken to in such a big way. And that's, that's so important to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways too, it's kind of like it's unsettling in part because of the juxtaposition of um, of the, like the cutesiness and the fact that a lot of the characters seem very nonchalant about some of the horrific things that are happening around them, which you know creates this weird dissonance in your brain where it's like everything tells you that like you should want to run away or that these characters should want to run away, and yet none of them seem like I mean, very few of them seem very concerned. <laughs> um, Literally, only work. <laughs> Wirt is the only one who's like we should not be here or do any of these things and everybody else is like no this is fine yeah like, what's, yeah, what's that I, happen I there's all the little things people talk about how they discover things every time they watch it but for me mm-hmm. it's it's this floating um, um, everything and nothing all at once like the anachronism for one thing um, nobody ever stops and says why are there giant turkeys nobody has that conversation um their costumes what are they wearing um like what time is this they're lost clearly but why are they lost where have they come from because occasionally they'll make these little passing references that make it sound like they know more or they're not from this place so all of that stuff coming together for this unsettling feel of course the people that live there uh the people in the um in the inn are are part of that world and that's part of that kind of unsettling nature um but our characters are just they're they're barely hanging on um and for me that's something that you could only get at a table when you have everybody on the same page when you have some everybody agreeing to push and pull i've described these three roles which i've called the traveler uh, the arcadian and the terror and if you imagine them as a triangle to the left and right you have these ways to either confirm or deny people. So a yes and to the left and a no but to the right. So your traveler, that's that's Wirt, that's Greg. Um, they cannot contradict the, the terror. They can only yes and the terror. Um, but the terror can directly, in verse, contradict what they say in terms of narrative. And then the third portion of the triangle, that's the Arcadian, that's all the normal people. Yeah, maybe they're not threatening. It's John Cleese in a giant mansion talking about madness. Um, maybe not threatening, <laughs> but certainly not good. Um, they are filling in the world. They're the they're the opening monologue. Who gives the opening monologue? That's the Arcadian. They they fill in the world and the people there. And so even though it doesn't seem like it, they are confirming and trying to help the traveler, the lost people, and only them can they kind of slowly mold the terror the horror parts so how you establish these details are specifically and procedurally created so that you have this push and pull between people saying ah well maybe but yes in Pottsfield, you you have these like twists and twists and twists oh there's something weird no it's okay actually it's terrible actually it's okay you can pull this off using those yes ands or no buts directly within the relationships of the three roles Interesting. So is it a situation where, because um, I know in a lot of typical role-playing games, like D&D, Pathfinder, there is like a central game master that is kind of organizing things, and it feels like a lot, a lot of those duties are kind of split between the three. Um, but conversely, there's usually a set of people who are kind of like the operating players, the characters who have agency. Um, so is this a situation where every person that's participating in the game has a piece, like a player character that they're running, or is it more that like the Arcadian is setting the the mood, the terror is working in combination with, but the traveler is running like the character or characters? 
Yeah, so everyone's kind of doing double duty, but based on how you create scenes, kind of focus on who's there. Um, if you have a beast, if you have a literal character that represents the evil, the, the creeping thing in the back of everyone's mind, then that's the player character or the specific character played by uh, the terror. But a lot of the time, their job is to just twist the, the knife. They're going to be adding this these layers in. Whoever you decide is lost in, in this world, um, they are the characters played by uh, the, the Traveler. Um, so they're trying to establish details that will help them, but also they're the ones being work. They're being Greg. They're establishing those things. And then your more general, what you might think of as a traditional GM role, I am both the world, the physical descriptions, as well as the people in it. That's the Arcadian. Um, so you're kind of going back and forth, but the way that you established your yes ands on your right, your no buts on your left, have to do with who you're sitting next to, uh, but then also who's playing in scene. So uh, it's 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 both GMless, but also you're sharing a lot of these responsibilities that are normally only on like one person. So a lot of role-playing games i i'm unsatisfied with the way that they treat players like empty vessels for which story is sort of subjected on them the dm sort of sitting in this gygaxian tower to just sort of tell stories at them so it is of great interest to me the games that that ask the the gm role to rotate every round or the fact that we all share those duties because for me those are the most compelling games those are the most exciting stories those are the games that i as a player as a fan of, of role-playing games when it come back to over and over again. I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess when it comes to, to role-playing games, there are definitely going to be like tables where it has that element to it, where it doesn't really feel like as much of a collaborative experience so much as the, the GM has kind of like brewed up this story and is like having the players experience it. And I think that like, to me, when you sit at tables like that, that's much more analogous to like a, um, to like a video game or something which like mm -hmm. you know if that's what you want to do just go play a video game to me at least um to, i find it a lot more interesting when you have um you know someone who's running a game who's willing to kind of think on their feet and to really kind of like dynamically adjust what's going on in reaction to what the players are doing i i find that um the shared culture of role-playing games is largely um assumed it's kind of untapped. Um, why do you do what you do? Um, why are what we're doing what we're doing? You play uh, something like 5e, and I, I, I find there's nothing in those books that actually explain what this weird game of pretend is. Um, they're kind of all descended from, from miniatures war games. So the fact that uh, a short sword and a long sword do different kinds of damage is in the book. But... Um, what is a plot point and how do you increase tension and how do you foster player agency? Those are not in the book. And to me, those are the, the interesting things. Um, I think you can have a, an experience where um, the hierarchy is larger between the, uh, the facilitator and the players, but I don't think it should be assumed. Um, and I, I, as a player, as a person who takes part in this um, in this hobby, the tables that I want to be at or where I'm constantly surprised, where I'm engaged, where I'm immersed 
in in what's happening. And for me, that's trusting the other players, um, you know, asking questions, listening as much as you're talking. Role-playing games are special because unlike every other kind of media, the the difference between participant and audience member is obliterated. They're, they're, they're the same thing. Um, I That's why they're continually compelling to me. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I definitely agree. It's one of the few things like where you really get to kind of insert yourself into the art of it. Um, and I definitely understand kind of the importance of kind of questioning some of the ways that things are done because, you know, just because it's always been done the way that it's been done doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way to do it. And and I think that like when you look at a game like D&D, it definitely does make a lot of assumptions. And I think Marvin, we've talked about this before, where like there there are definitely like large swaths of the book that kind of assume that you have a certain amount of pre-existing knowledge. And if you don't have that, it becomes a lot harder to like explain it to somebody else. Um, you know, anybody who's ever had to teach the game to somebody new um, knows immediately that like just telling them to read any section of the book is generally a mistake and that you really kind of want them to kind of start engaging right away um the, the part that's fun about the game is getting to make pretend um yeah. at least in my experience um i mean i quite enjoyed the war aspect the war game aspect of it as well but that's not usually what hooks people in and certainly not usually what hooks in new players they usually like it's easier to get them kind of rolling dice and starting from there than it is to say all right here's a book report go and you know do that and then come back when you're ready well what have been your guys's experience with role-playing games what when when do you find that they kind of transcend the experience when they become like special and memorable that you like keep thinking about them marvin you want to take that one i'm gonna need a minute to think about this for a second That's fair. Um, I guess I'll spitball an answer then while Marvin's brewing on that. Um, so I think for me, role-playing games... Um, so I, I've been playing role-playing games for about 15 years now. Um, you know, Marvin and I started around the same time um, as it happened. So my first experiences with tabletops were largely with 3.5, and I played the crap out of that. Um you know, I played a ton of 3.5, bunch of the source, you know, source books, bunch of the expansion books, all that jazz. And I largely didn't really know very much about what I was doing. You know, the, the internet was still real, you know, it was, was around, but it wasn't, um, as I guess, as ubiquitous as it is now, um, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, when I'm pay- playing 3.5, I'm, you know, I'm playing characters, but like, really, I'm just playing the war game part. The role playing is not something that I was really as good at, but I think that's kind of typical for new, for new players. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, the moment that it kind of becomes something more is there's kind of like isolated moments within each of the campaigns that I've played that I always go back and think about of like, Oh, that was a cool thing that so-and-so did, or that was a, a humorous situation. Um, so, so Marvin and I have a lot of experience with like Saga's edition, um, Star Wars, um, which yeah, is the yeah, yeah. system. And like, there are definitely things that have come up throughout the course of playing those campaigns where it's just like, that was r- ridiculous. Um, I recall an instance where, um, our friend Bob, he was playing a, uh, a cat alien, um, modeled after, uh, after, um, Wrath from Ben 10. Uh-huh. If you're familiar with that character at all, but basically just like think of like giant large cat man that like punches stuff. And we were in a situation where we were in the spaceport and we needed a distraction. So he's like, I'm going to go into a closet and shave myself completely. And then I'm going to go around running it without any clothes on and just start, you know, knocking guards over. 
how did he shave himself? He, he had a razor. Why did he have a razor? I, the GM didn't question it, and I wasn't going to stop okay. him. Right. <laughs> it seems very impromptu, unless his whole thing was like, oh, man, I can't wait to shave myself. <laughs> but, like, all of our characters were, like, freelance. Yeah. Like, freelance, freelance like, sort of bounty hunter-ish, but not really. So, like, it it kind of makes sense when we're in a spaceport near our ship that somebody would have a razor to shave. So nobody questioned it. It's mm. just, it makes enough sense in this context. Was it his razor? Or did he just go up to random people being like, hi, could you share your razor for a second? Like, <laughs> I think for me, that's important. You know, <laughs> how, how you get there is vital for that moment. So I think he was. I think he did it with the help of the robot, and I think the robot Great. got it from Jack, who was the See, like, captain of the ship. So I think it was technically Jack's razor, which I'm sure okay. he wouldn't have been happy about because surely it was dull by the end of it. One doesn't shave a six foot cat man and not dull the razor, right? There's six many ways has to do so. <laughs> so, um, so it's like you know, you look back and you're just like. You know, how could I, as a GM, right? Our GM, uh, Dylan, at the time was very patient. <laughs> and surely he thought, you know, oh, they need to cause a distraction so that the Gungan can hack into the computer terminal. I'm sure they'll think of something to distract, cause a distraction, perhaps talk to one of the guards, maybe start a fight. A streaking Catman was probably not on his radar in any capacity. Um, and like, to me, that's not what... mine. <laughs> And like to me, like those are the kind of things. N- not that I spend a lot of time, f- you know, fantasizing about naked catmen, but um, go on, go on. <laughs> but <laughs> but like those are the kind of moments to me that really kind of like stick out. Where it's like you know, yeah, like sure, I've played lots of D anD D, but when I think back at those, I don't think of like the dozens of sessions where we go shopping, or even like the individual like fights where it's like, oh yeah, I rolled a twenty, that was really cool. I think back to those like story moments where it's like. Uh, you know, my character negotiated with a demon to speak with, you know, Osmodeus, the, you know, prince of the nine hells or whatever, like, you know, at a very low, low level, thanks to a couple of nice roles or, you know, the sprinting Catman through the spaceport or, um, you know, or the, the stalking terror that, you know, uh, you know, comes from a cursed book that, you know, my, my players were unable to, to uncurse basically uh you know it's like those individual moments that that make up you know it's that and then also like you know when you have your player character like message you later it's like dude i was terrified during that game and it's like (laughs) i did it (laughs) that that to me is kind of what what makes it it's like because i know that you mentioned horror um i ran a very brief 3.5 campaign based on it follows if you watch that movie or have you seen love that? it follows yeah so i based a very short 3.5 campaign off of that i didn't get to finish it because i ended up moving um but basically the the um instead of it being an std it was tied to a to a uh, ancient tome that the players had lifted from a uh, ah, see i i disagree with the std interpretation but go on I, i'm <laughs> using it as shorthand right um i no, no, no i understand but uh <laughs> this is uh now we're going to talk about horror analysis and oh i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> um very good yeah so we'll we'll get into that um for sure uh but to, to, to make a long story not as long though like this was a a campaign where i um made very clear for the first like five or six sessions it was just like traditional high fantasy um they interacted with a couple of the guards who had a very particular uniform and then when the creature started ta- uh, started stalking them the creature had the same uniform as the guards 
So it was one of those situations where, like, even though they really would like to go talk to a professional about this problem, they really can't because they don't know when the professional is not actually a professional. Um, and, and it was really fun. Um, you know, the, the characters, um, the players rather, were, uh, well, Marvin could probably speak to it, but it, they seemed legitimately frightened of this creature that, you know, completely flipped the power dynamic of this game on its head. Whereas before they were doing traditional high fantasy, now it is a fundamentally unstoppable force that they now have to try and, you know, escape from in addition to try and, you know, resolve in some way. Yeah, now you're talking about my bread and butter, which is like, what is horror and why does it work the way it does? Were you were you in that game, Marvin? Uh, yes, yes, I was. I was playing uh, a wizard. Um, what was the other class? Archivist. Archivist. Such an interesting class flavor-wise that is kind of garbage. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was I was playing like super book nerd, like barely there. How is this guy adventuring character? Yeah, and like the STD demon came out of a book. That was my character's thing. Books. <laughs> um, oh no, not even books are safe. Oh. Yeah, for real. That's basically what happened. I was like, I can't yeah, even I read you. books now. Right, that's yeah. wild um <laughs> but yeah it was it was it wasn't terrifying until the first time owen said you lose x amount of experience yeah <laughs> but i was like wait i can lose experience in this campaign hold on wait a minute <laughs> yeah it's very old school it's very second ed uh they they, they were not shy about like negative levels and stuff Oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah, they were relatively low level too. I think you're what, like level four or something at the time. Yeah, uh, four or five. Yeah, it's like four or five or whatever. And one of the so, correct me if I'm not correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I kind of am interesting. But like to me, I think when running a horror campaign, I think one of the fundamental elements of like what makes horror horror is the difference in power dynamic, which I think sometimes is difficult to portray in like D&D, for instance. Whereas, like, in D&D, you kind of have this traditional power fantasy that, you know, a lot of people are playing in, whereas in horror, it feels like a lot of times you want the monster to be something that cannot be necessarily fought traditionally, uh, at least in most circumstances, and certainly not unprepared. So, um, you know, to try and facilitate that, it made the creature immune to basically all forms of damage, and instead of attacking and dealing damage in health points, I wanted to deal damage in experience, because my thought at the time um, was that hit points can be restored. Experience points represent like physical time spent and thus feel a lot more personal. Um, but I'm kind of curious what your take on that would be. I mean, I could definitely talk broadly about horror and what it means and how to create it. The idea of a monster in a traditional third ed setting where it doesn't it doesn't do any damage it only takes experience points is that what you did yeah basically um so as like well then it would it, be it also, well then it would be easy to kill because i would just sit there and wait till i was level one and then i would just punch it to death <laughs> see you think that but also like if we got to zero experience from this we just died or i'll just ex electrocute it in a pool i guess but um that's not how experience works. If you're at zero experience points, you're not dead. Um, if you have zero constitution, you're dead. If you have zero strength, you're paralyzed. Um, if you have zero intelligence or wisdom, you're insane. 
Um, but if you're at zero experience points, you're just a level one character. Um, I like the idea of people being terrified of a new kind of thing. I, I think that um, in the early days of D&D, when it was the first uh, kind of the only kid on the block and you know, things like GURPS and the first Call of Cthulhu started showing up, there was a lot of immediate questions about, okay, well, what are we doing and why and how do we do that? And for me, that's the most interesting part about role-playing games and design. Um, traditionally in Call of Cthulhu, your hit points never go up. And you have two pools. You have hit points, which is very small. Uh, and then um, sanity points, which is out of, you know, generally sort of like a, a hundred scale. So you don't level up. You don't get stronger. The idea of, again, this is all very video gamey because video games are all taken from the quote-unquote RPG elements of, of original Dungeons and Dragons. I'm getting stronger and tougher so I can take more punches in the face. Like that doesn't facilitate narrative in the way that we think it does. So when you're creating again, trying to make a miniatures war game, which the, the rules generally facilitate and you want to tell a grounded horror story. Well, the number thing, the number one thing you got to take away is uh, safety. You got to take away their agency. Um, the idea that, the players are able to do things and succeed. You have to put that into balance. And that's really uh, a very, very, um, uh, it's a sensitive balance to, to do. Um, you, you, that's why you need those like level zero kind of sessions. You need players to be on board. Um, uh, usually when you play a, a horror game like like Dread, which doesn't use dice, it uses a Jenga tower instead. Ten Candles, which uh, does have dice pools, but you have ten candles on the table, which are slowly going out. Players come in with the expectation that they're going to be vulnerable, and most importantly, they're going to be isolated. Um, the main, the number one thing you need to have horror is isolation. That's why all horror movies take place in like haunted houses or something, or Alien is on a ship. You can't leave the ship. If you could just leave, um, then the tension, <laughs> the, the tension evaporates. So this is why It Follows was so interesting is because the threat is actually quite slow. And so they leave, but it's this inevitability, which gets to why it's not an STD. Um, when you have an STD and you spread it, do you still have the STD or is it gone forever? The fact that it's spread through sex in the movie, it's not an STD. For me, it's, it's about... Um, maturity it's about growing up it's about becoming this new thing it's about accepting death um and so if the if death comes for you it's because you are still stuck in this this previous state and you know i, I don't want to go too deeply into spoilers about like the end of the final shots but i think going forward you're you're being chased by death you're growing up you're accepting adult life i think that's the metaphor the fact that it spreads through sex i think is just like a mechanism. It's not actually the theme of the the, the film at all. Um, mm. It's the it's the Terminator. It's the Terminator. This thing is coming at you. You can't stop it. How do you stop it? Um, the Terminator is my favorite slasher. These are all slasher movies, and slashers are you run away. If you can hide, then you have you have a defense. But if you're stuck in a place, then you have to deal with it, despite the fact that you have no agency. That's horror. You mm. you created all these elements and you've come them together. That's how you create horror. Um, not an over the garden wall because also you have people like throwing candy out of their pockets. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's more complex than a traditional horror story, you know? Um, so it, that's why it's so fascinating to me. Not, not to bring it back to over the 
uh, under the Autumn Strangely, now on Kickstarter for about 95 minutes. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. And, and I think that, like, in a way, on um, Over the Garden Wall does kind of do that. It, it does... I mean, because it makes it clear that even though the characters are kind of wandering through, it's not exactly a horror slasher film. It's really more like this horror-adjacent aesthetic experience from, at least again, from like my limited understanding of it. Um, and Marvin, you may feel a little bit differently about it, but to me, when I look at the, at, you know, the, the bits of it that I have seen, um, to me, I, I, it doesn't necessarily scream, it doesn't scream horror in the same way that like Chucky does, or, you know, from like Child's Play, or that like, you know, uh, Freddy Krueger or Jason or, you know the classics to me it screams nightmare and El- uh nightmare- not nightmare on elm street uh nightmare before christmas <laughs> that's mm-hmm. like the kind of vibe that i get where it's like it's tapping into these macabre elements as a part of the aesthetic and not really a part of the like the core messaging there are things that are concerning but it uses them more as set dressing rather than like the focal point of what's going on yeah kind of because at the end of the day, Over the Garden Wall is a coming-of-age story that wants you to think it's a horror story until you find out. Like, because it, it wants you to think it's a, a slasher fic. It, it's like, here, look at this monster that's coming to get these people, and it's not really a monster coming to get them. They're going to the monster. I, 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 I love that take um, because of the broad sense of the themes that are that are at play um in the show um, um some some are you know very surface level um ward is a teenager he he deals with uh, teenage stresses and he's placed in this other world there's all these little hints you know where are they what is the nature of the place that they're in why are they lost um you know very dante's inferno is it a liminal space um is it the land of the dead all all of these things which again you know bringing up it follows is a fantastic analog well done good good hosting um <laughs> total accident because all of these things are about maturation they're about growing up um and i would argue that all of these things are horror i mean being in middle school being in high school that's a horror story Can't your body fun. changing that's body horror uh things I mean, that are beyond your control that you can't explain yeah, because, like, horror isn't just slasher fix. It's not the things that we normally think of as horror movies. It's, there's all kinds of horror. Like, have you played Digimon Survive? <laughs> the the new one, right? Yeah. I it's, adore Digimon, but everybody's been, been talking smack. I haven't touched it. So it's it's just a visual novel, but it's horror. It's all horror. It's, wow. it's, it's just a horror story, and it's not a slasher fic. It's, it's isekai if it was horror. Yeah. Oh man. Well, now now I got to play it. I've just only been <laughs> I've only read such negative things about it, but I adore Digimon. It's very close to my heart. All of the people saying negative things didn't understand that it was a visual novel or didn't understand what a visual novel was. Great. So like, I understand why they're upset, but if you know what you're getting into, it's real good. Great. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to hear. But yeah, like horror isn't just slasher fix. It's not just a guy with a knife or a monster or something chasing you. There's all kinds of horror. Yeah. Yeah, I oh, oh go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to explain what my favorite horror movies are and why. Um <laughs> but I I don't really like 
slasher movies, quote unquote. I mean, I would say the closest slasher movie that I adore is The Terminator. People are like, who who's your favorite slasher villain? And they go to all these, you know, you, you've named a few, you know, Jason, Freddy, Chucky. For me, it's The Terminator because uh, I adore that film. There's like two pages of dialogue the entire time. It's incredibly efficient. It has a an iconic mood. It completely does it. And I think that so many other things draw direct representation from this unstoppable, invincible thing. Uh, I, I think it's perfectly paced. You know, it goes all the way. My favorite horror movies are are ones that that they create a mood. They 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 create a tone. It's things like The Witch. It's things like uh, Green Room. It's things like the first Alien movie. Um, they they care about making you feel a certain way in a specific thing. I appreciate like things like um, Brain Dead, um, things that are like splash fix and gore and the idea that like you know that got tired and we ended in the 90s and needed to have like scream to deconstruct it and stuff but generally i'm there to like feel a certain way and that's why i keep showing up it's also why i keep running these games is because i can't stop thinking about like what these things mean and why yeah and i that's kind of what I was going to mention is that like at the end of the day, you want your stories to say something, right? Anybody can write a, a movie where monster shows up, guy shows up with an ice hook and, you know, starts killing teenagers. Like those are, are pretty rude. And sure. There've been like a zillion different versions of that. Right. You know, for every, you know, masterpiece, like the thing or, you know, alien, you have, you know, happy death day, right. Where someone's trying to poke fun at the genre. Um, but if you're not ultimately saying anything, it's it's kind of moot. Um, and I think that to me, like when I look at my like role playing games, when I come back to those and I look at kind of the sorts of stories that I want to tell, ultimately I want to try and construct that experience that transcends just the mechanics of what's going on. I want the players to reflect back on that story and think back to those moments of like. Hey guys, you remember the one time that like, you know, we thought we were going to go fight that guy that was made of spiders and then it turned out that he was our friend that like I knew him, but then I didn't like you want those, those moments to like, you know, come back to the player, you know, in in years, you know, years after the event and for them to think not just like, oh, that was, you know, a cool fight or, oh, that was a, you know, I enjoyed hitting level, you know, whatever, you want them to think back like, wow, I was, you know, surprised in that moment. I was, you know, I was afraid in that moment. They, you, you want them to kind of have an emotional experience. And if your game isn't inciting some sort of emotion in your players, if they're not that, that kind of invested, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you do need to kind of work with your players to figure out what kind of mood you can achieve. So that way they are still feeling something. It's exactly why I think mechanics are so vital. Um, and that's why I am frustrated by kind of the, the heavy lifting that's done by all these assumptions about what is and isn't possible. Um, role-playing texts, books, they're very much like a cookbook. You, you write a thing, you give it to somebody, and then you walk away. Um, and what they do in their space with their friends, uh, you have no control over. Um, and so there's a lot of assumptions that people create about even like what's being done. So the way you create, as you say, emotional experiences, I think is, is vital. I think it's vital that narrative is created by mechanics and mechanics create narrative. And that there's, there's a reason for them being there. Um, 
games like Fiasco, games like Microscope, um, games like Dread, they completely changed the way that I thought about the way role-play games could be written and could be played. Not should be played, because that's fine. The culture being created is unique in and of itself, both at the table and then broadly. But the idea that I sit down and that the rules are saying, ah, well, there's a procedure, there's a ritual that we're all going to use, that is going to get us the the kind of story or the ideas that's going to draw these questions out of us. It's just going to require me to engage with what's happening. Um, it's 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 exciting. It's exciting, and it's this kind of space that I want to be in. Yeah, and that's the thing is, like, at the end of the day, we need to, like, that's why I always get kind of frustrated with people who are like, you know, D and D or bust. Because um, to me, it's like there are so many unique and different games that you could expose yourself to that may be better avenues to tell the story that you want to tell than Dungeons and Dragons. Like, there are so many games out there. I, I quite literally cannot name them all. You know, it is it is boundless and endless, and every day more and more entering the market. It is saturated, um, critically. But yeah. But the thing is, is what? that if you want to... Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I was just going to say that that's why you should have ZineQuest. <laughs> <laughs> no, 100%. But that's, I, that's I've, I've backed so many games just from ZineQuest because people are putting forth these like fascinated ideas that i you know uh they activate you and they're like the the best way possible yeah a hundred percent and that's the thing right it's like if i want to go and make a, a campaign based on superheroes like yeah could i force dungeons and dragons to do that yeah if i put in the effort but at that point i may as well just play a different game you know if i want to play sci-fi could i put laser guns in my D game yeah technically like i'm the gm i can do whatever i want but you know does that make sense within the context of what we're doing here you know if i want to play a, a horror adjacent game based on you know scp like yeah sure i can use the mechanics from from D, but like surely there are just better systems better equipped to, to generate that experience and if I'm only ever looking at the one book to try and, you know, figure out how to make it work, then I'm going to kind of, by necessity, limit the kind of ideas that I'm willing to entertain when it comes to the stories I want to tell. Uh, yeah, I, I think the contract is specifically trying to be SCP, so I, I recommend that. Um, and then if you're fascinated by SCP, I, 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 would, um, I would be screwing up if I didn't mention... Um, um, the mystery flesh pit uh national park is this something either one of you guys are familiar with not at all but it sounds very intriguing (laughs) (laughs) okay so um scps imagine imagine um like an scp like taken to its logical conclusion um it's it's the work of a single man um they're full of maps and videos and diagrams and brochures and images and backstory all within the the idea that um in like west texas there's like this big um unknown endlessly kilometers deep like orifice and like flesh pit and it got kind of co-opted by like a corporation and became a, a national park and so there's like you know, like a sonic in its throat and like people will go like check it out and stuff. Um, if you like SCP, um, you need to go read and or experience the, uh, uh, the mystery flesh pit national park. It is unlike anything in terms of an, an achievement of like multimedia that I've ever, ever come across. 
I just googled it, and um, it's wild. That that's that's an image. That's oh something. yeah, it's Ooh, crazy. I the other thing that you said about being frustrated by people that only play D anD D. I am not frustrated by those folks. Um, for me, the question is like, what are they trying to get out of it? Um, if 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 what you're doing is a little bit of of wargaming, a little bit of storytelling, you're hanging out with your friends, then like I I have no no issue like coming up in into your into your table and telling you what you should and shouldn't play. Um if if somebody is naturally questioning these things and they say, well what else else is there? There's a world for them to find out. I mean that's why I'm here is because, you know, uh as uh, I started on like second ed, three oh and then three five uh, and then very, very quickly it was like, well, well what else is there? Um, because I was really starting to feel like the, the limits of those. Um, but if you're just like, if it's just time to spend with, with people you like, then like um, there, there's really no problem with the, the using that in, its, in, its, in, the, in the way that exists. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the rules and the stories and, the, and, and how how they get applied. Um, if people are wanting to experiment, then all of these experiments are out there. Um, that to me is very, very exciting. Um, I, I go to Gen Con, I go to a huge convention like that for work. Um, but then um, what I'm looking for, are like micro communities, I'm looking for people to, to share time with, to, to learn about what the um, projects they're working on. Um, I much prefer like these smaller cons with like a couple hundred people. Um, particularly things like Metatopia um, in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, it hasn't been in person for, for quite a while, and I really miss it because it's what's kind of brought me here um, because it's full of people designing board games, role-playing games, uh, LARP, um, everything in between. And I've met a lot of like my heroes there, you know, people who were just names on the backs of books who inspired me. And then, you know, you see them across the bar and you're like, oh, that's Jason Morningstar. That's crazy. Um, and that's, and that's really exciting. Yeah, no, there's definitely something to be said about, you know, being able to find yourself in a situation where you were, where you are rubbing shoulders with people that, you know, obviously are people that exist, but like up until that point are just kind of like ideas in your head, you know, and it's like, suddenly you find yourself, you know, kind of in a situation face to face where you can have that interaction. It's it's very unique and I do miss conventions very much. Um, it's been a number of years since I've gone to one. Um, and you know, truthfully, it's something that I do hope that I can do again soon. It's like dragon con, the closest thing to you guys. Like what, what kind of Florida cons do you guys have? Um, there's a few, there's like Supercon, which is kind of smaller. Megacon is the bigger one. Um, <laughs> that used to be annual. I don't even know when the last Megacon was. Um, I only, I think recently... Megacon's back to annual. Oh, okay, because I remember it was there was a summer megacon as well for a little while. Um, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, like who wants to go outside in July? Um, so, <laughs> um, I so I think the last major convention I went to was um, I think oh, what's the con in uh, California? Is it Anime Con or something? Well, there's well, there's, there's Big Bad Con, which is the very popular. It's very LARPy. I mean, obviously, um, uh, Comic Con in San Diego. Um, yeah, I think but it was, that's, I, it was uh, one of the Anime Cons. I can't recall offhand because um, at the time, Anime Expo. Yeah, AX. That was it. Um, 
so I think AX was the last one I went to, and that was even then that was like several years before the pandemic. I think maybe like twenty eighteen, maybe twenty nineteen, something like that. So you know, it was quite a quite a quite a bit ago. But it's definitely something that I do miss, and I, I do want to go back. Um, particularly, you know, since we've started the podcast, it's been a you know a a journey and it's something that i do want to you know kind of get into for sure but you know obviously with um you know world events that's been a lot more difficult um i would say over the last few years mm-hmm. well lucky you can I... all do it online you know yeah definitely something we'll look into for sure um but we are actually running up um on time here uh Graham, oh, but so... marvin is gonna say something marvin. oh i was just gonna say i also miss the con life i haven't been to a con since 2019 it it's Killing me every day. <laughs> well, if if you guys want to come to PAX Unplugged, it's focused on board games, role-playing games, specifically like no electricity. Um, it's probably my favorite large con um, of that of that scale. I think it's awesome. It's a little far for you guys, but I think it's uh, it's more focused on kind of activities, things to do with people, meet people. It's less about the capitalism, the 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 booths and the t-shirts and the the Funko Pops you know like whatever else um, those for me like I I didn't go to cons for a very very long time I was just sort of making these like friend groups like playing games you know sharing things um, reading comic books you know watching movies playing games um, because I didn't realize there was anything for me there but once I realized that there was community there was sharing then like that's that's what I miss. Like you, Marvin, it's it's like what I what I think about what I like makes me excited. Oh, I, I get to go see these people. Oh, I wonder what we're gonna you know play this time. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's not the conventions itself. It's con life. It's yeah. the vibe of being at a con and just being around people who are passionate about the same things in large quantities. Yeah, I think that was part of the reason why I stopped going in the first place. Um, was <laughs> honestly. <laughs> No, no, seriously. it was too happy, too nice. No, I mean that makes me sound like stink meaner. Um, what I what I mean specifically <laughs> is that, like at the time, I was living quite far away from anybody else that I would go with. <laughs> so, like, because to me, a lot of like my the fond memories that I have from cons largely surround um, like the groups of people that I go with and that kind of mm-hmm. shared experience. Um, is it any wonder they gravitate towards role playing games? Um, but like, you know, getting together with a group of friends and going in group cosplay or, you know, just uh, hang around, meeting up, you know, uh, getting to like, you know, plan meal breaks where it's like, all right, guys, we're going to you know hang around the con three o'clock. Let's meet here and then we're going to go get some lunch, you know, whatever it is. Um, in addition to like, you know, stopping by different booths and, you know, interacting, you know, my first experience playing D&D was at a, was at a convention, right? Awesome. That, I love that. I love hearing that. Yeah, look, I wouldn't have gotten into it because, you know, at the time, you know, yeah, I had heard of it. But, you know, in what situation is some teenager going to get invited to a table when the only people that I know that are playing are in their 20s and, you know, 30s, mm. you know? Um, so it was a really great opportunity for me to kind of get exposed to it and get an idea on what I was doing. Because then from there, that gave me the confidence to say, no, I can actually run that and then I can get my friends to play with me. Um, and that's what I ended <laughs> up doing. Um, I, I actually, you know, after after that Megacon, I, I went home, I bought the books myself, and I think, like, three weeks, four weeks later or something, I started getting a game together. Yeah, I I, I love that. Um, it's it's such a huge problem. Um, if anybody has experienced um, 
any kind of um, like othering in their life for any reason. And there are endless reasons for people to be excluded, um, um, targeted um, for, and for any way. Um, It's, that is something that's present often in these, in these kind of gatekeeping experiences that happen. So it is so important to me to like, not just like, find people, but like hold the door open for people, like invite them in, like shout them, like, like, come on down. Like everyone is here and like hold that door open as long as possible so that like everybody can come in. Um, there's like a practical thing being like the more people that play the games, I mean, there's more people to come with. There's the the designer part of me, which is like, I want to play more different kinds of games designed by different kinds of people, but also just like as a human being, like it's, it, it causes me like great distress. If anybody's like, I'm not, I don't belong there. I'm not allowed. So like, I, it's, it's a big part of why I run games at cons. It's a big reason why I like do booths or do stuff is because, you know, I want to be that person that reaches a cost and says, no, of course you're welcome. Please sit down. We're going to have a great time together. Like that's for me, that's what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many, the, the hobby is so huge now too right like there are so mm-hmm. many new people who are getting exposed to tabletops for the first time and it is so important that those people can see themselves in the games and in the players that are playing those games you know i, I think it's a huge disservice to think of you know of D is just like some hobby that a bunch of geeky white people play right um because it does such a disservice it's it's part of the boon of of this indie space is that it's been explored by designers uh by people who who have different priorities that want to tell different kinds of stories that have different kinds of games um uh you know things like monster hearts you know things like thirsty sword lesbians things like wander home <laughs> um these are incredible games that are serving very specific kinds of games to very specific uh people that like they're they're like like the the laser guns in D and D metaphor, people are like taking traditionally things that like don't speak to them. Um, they're, they're morphing them. You know, you have things like Howdy and Crow, which is talking about like indigenous experiences. You have um, Harlem Unbound talking about Call of Cthulhu in the Harlem Renaissance for people of color. Um, it, the, the sheer amount of games designed um, with um, a queer lens are incredible because then you get to play these games that are experiencing something because normally it's people taking D&D and being like, well, how do I make this blacker? How do I make this queerer? And they're, they're taking this rag and they're like twisting it and pulling it, trying to do everything else. It's the exact same thing with the laser guns. So the fact that people are able to use these spaces and be encouraged and find other people excluded for these reasons and then have them feel welcome, it's, it's, uh, it's like nothing else. Yeah, and definitely something that I want to, to spend more time um... I don't really kind of enjoying because I think that it really is a disservice if the only thing that, you know, that, you know, your players ever get exposed to is just, you know, the one thing it's, you know, and it, just to kind of clarify, I know um, I maybe came off a little bit hard. I don't have any animosity towards people who only play Dungeons and Dragons. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, hey, 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 you hear that, guys? You already said? Yep, yep. I said it. I said it. Please roast me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so that's what we call engagement. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, all of your likes, give them all to me. Um, so uh, you know, but you know, I have no ill will towards people who only play D anD. largely only play D anD. D right, like I, I can't be fundamentally upset with these people because I understand that like there is 
added burden to trying to learn new rule sets. Not everybody has the time to sit down and read through something like that and to teach it to another, you know, three or four people or more um, in order to sit down and have a new gaming experience. I think for me, what I, what I dislike is that it is people who look at tabletop role-playing games and think that it's only ever high fantasy because that's the thing that I want to kind of break down. And that's the kind of, the kind of thing that I want to you know, kind of communicate across is that if you don't like high fantasy, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like tabletop games. It means that you don't like Dungeons and Dragons. Probably. It means you probably don't like Pathfinder all that much, but there are so many other experiences that you can have outside of that genre. And that's what I, you know, kind of what I, I don't want to say rage against. Cause I don't, talk about all that often but it's something that like i think that if that's the takeaway that somebody gets where it's like tabletop role-playing game is high fantasy i think that they're doing themselves a disservice sounds like a lot of haterade to me i don't know about you marvin what do you think i think he hates um, D. you heard it here folks no no i'm the one who hates D D in this podcast come all on all right let's hear it true? let's hear it <laughs> oh no i just if if you're gonna play high fantasy i think there are better systems like pathfinder uh, yeah. Not sponsored, but should be. Um, Pathfinder 1 or 2, my friend. <laughs> I, I'm a huge advocate for Pathfinder 2. I, yes! I oh, me too. So much. Love Pathfinder 2. It's oh, it's so good. It's unbelievably good. It is the second system ever that I have actively gone out of my way to get source books for, aside from just the core rulebook or player's handbook. Love that. Um, the first being Star Wars Saga Edition because that's my favorite <laughs> system of all time, even though it's straight garbage now. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to it is a very bizarre experience. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, uh, I'm about to run. I don't really like Fifth Edition, like the new Vampire the Masquerade. But in college, I played a lot of um, kind of old world darkness, not new world darkness. I'm really getting into the weeds now. But I'm <laughs> going to go to. <laughs> Save Against Fear, which is like a, a middle-sized con in New York, Pennsylvania, uh, and I'm going to run Revised, um, which is basically like the last edition of it from 1998. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've gone back, and I've run a lot of different systems within what's called the Storyteller System with White Wolf before they went debunked. Um, and, I mean, I love Exalted. Oh my god, everybody who, who who's interested in, in kind of these like crunchy things could show read and play Exalted. But, like, it's weird. It's weird going back. I've played so many, like, indie games and storytelling games and things where I can, mm-hmm. like, you know, one-page RPGs, like, even, like, Honey Heist or Lasers and Feelings. Going back and, like, reading this book I read in college, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, man. It's a lot. Oh, boy. Anyways. So I got I 35 uh... minutes left. Are you still going to back it? Go ahead. You got 35 minutes. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I might. I Come think on, I might. 30, Thirty-five minutes. That's all you got. Thirty-four. <laughs> oh, it's checking. Thirty-four down. minutes. Thirty-four minutes. I see it right there. Checking That's down. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Graham, thank you so much for stopping by uh, tonight to talk with us uh, about your project. Um, you know, so uh, for our audience at home, where can they find you? Yeah. So mostly, I'm active on Twitter at. This may be Graham. Um, I also write for and design um, games with Ninth Level Games. Um, they are also active on Twitter, um, famous for their games like Cobalt Ate My Baby um, and Mazes and the Polymorph System. 
Um, so we're running uh, those kinds of games online all the time, usually about one um, learn-to-play free session per month or so. So, you know, perhaps you'll see me there. Um, otherwise, um, find me online or most conventions kind of on the Midwest or East Coast. Um, I'll be there sharing my love of games. Very cool. Very nice. Cool. Um, and, uh, you know, just for what it's worth, I will include a link to the uh, Kickstarter. It will be closed by the time you're listening to this, uh, dear listener. But um, if you do want to jump on there, check out a little bit about what Under the Autumn Strangely is about um, and see if that's something that maybe you want to look into, um, you know, or you know, maybe support Graham in another way. Uh, I'm sure that he would appreciate it. <laughs> the, the backer kit will be up. Um, so late, um, um, uh, late pledges are possible. Um, and also, you know, further donations and, and whatnot as the game is being developed and printed. Fantastic. Looking forward to nice. it. Nice. And hopefully you'll keep us posted with what's going on. I would love to. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Um, you know, as always, you can catch the shows new uh, every Sunday. Uh, try and release them in the afternoon unless I uh, accidentally schedule them for the wrong week. But, uh, you know, unlike last time. But I will uh, get them up um, by Sunday um, or Monday in the early a.m. at the very, very latest. Um you know, as always, you can catch us on Twitter at TIAFA Podcast. You can catch me at Vlad Viver. Marvin is at Taiyugetsu. Um So with that, um, again, thank you so much to our guest, uh, Graham, for joining us tonight. And I hope everyone has a good evening. Have you everybody? Thank you.